Welcome to AppSec Builders, the podcast for practitioners building modern AppSec, hosted by JB Avia. Hello, Xenia. Nice to meet you. Hi, JB. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. So, Xenia, you're a senior research engineer at, uh, at Synopsys. You lead a team of researchers and engineers working on static analysis. Before Synopsys, you had a consulting career where you did penetration testing, threat modeling, code review, and you're also a seasoned speaker at various AppSec conferences across the world, such as the famous uh, OWASP AppSec. So could you tell us a bit more about you and what you enjoy in the AppSec field? Sure. Well, I come from an engineering background. I was application developer in the gaming industry for about five years. And then I came to the United States to do my master's. And the last year I got an internship with Sigital that used to be called Sigital, a consulting company, a security intern. And I never went back <laughs> to development. <laughs> that was absolutely fascinating career because as a consultant, as a security person, you always need to learn new things. So I did consulting for about seven years and kind of went up into the ranks of principal consultants. And then I pivoted and started to dig more into the research and security research. And around the same time, Sigital was acquired by Synopsys. So now I work in Synopsys, so pretty much with the same company, with the same people, with a different name, but now as part of the security research lab as a security engineer. Super cool. You mentioned the gaming industry, uh, Xenia. So did you develop anything popular, famous? Well, that was, you know, many, many years ago. And I was developing games in Flash, Adobe Flash. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, you know, the little match three type Tetris type games. Yeah, for for housewives and, you know people at work. <laughs> all right. All right. That could be a nice introduction. Yes, that's how I got into security by hacking Flash in the browser, yep. but maybe not. <laughs> okay. And so you're actually in the middle of a PhD thesis, right? That's correct. Hopefully closer to the end. <laughs> but yes, in parallel with my full-time job, I'm also doing a PhD. And I'm working on, guess what, security research <laughs> on framework security specifically. And so how do you feel academic research is uh, helping application security moving uh, forward today? It's interesting. I feel like because I have a lot of experience in the practical field, I hope, I feel that I bring a different perspective into the academia because a lot of the research that there is in academia, at least in the last 10 years, a lot of the research was focusing on exploits, on finding vulnerabilities, which is great because people in academia do have a lot of time that they spend, you know, finding those new vulnerabilities, new types of attacks, especially on more complex concepts like, you know, crypto attacks, for example. But until about now, academia wasn't focused much about on fixing the problems that they find. So with my background in security consulting, where we not only find the issues, but we help developers to fix the issues. That's what I'm trying to bring into my research. How do we actually get rid of the bugs, not just find the bugs? Yes. So basically more shifting left, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So helping the academia focus shift left. It's a great outcome here. 
So this extensive research that you've done on, uh, on frameworks, so you presented it recently at uh, AppSec Cali. So in your research, you found that some frameworks made it easier than others to introduce certain categories of vulnerabilities. So would you mind telling us a bit more about that? Sure. So as part of my research, I was focusing on JavaScript and I started with client-side JavaScript frameworks or template engines. And then I switched into server-side JavaScript frameworks and I looked at different vulnerabilities. And the hypothesis was that if the framework actually has security controls or mitigations built in, then the applications would be more secure than if they're not. So it's kind of a native idea. But with the help of the categorization framework developed by John Stephen, I divided the places where the mitigation can exist into different levels. So we start with a level zero where there is no mitigation and code is vulnerable. And oftentimes that happens when there is no framework in use at all. So everything is written by developer from scratch. And then we go into the next level of a custom function that developer has written, and then into a third-party library that developer is using, and then into a framework plugin, so something that works very tightly with the framework. And then the next level, if the mitigation is built into the framework, and then actually there's another level that I discovered <laughs> throughout my work is when the mitigation is built into the language, programming language or platform itself. And of course, as far as you go, closer to the framework or closer to the architecture level, those vulnerabilities will be fixed and it's less likely that they will actually appear in the applications. But we also need to remember another important thing that, again, I discovered comparing the applications and running different security tools on them is that it's not just the built-in mitigations, but also the defaults are important. So if something is built into the framework, but not enabled by default, then developers may not even know it exists or may not enable it, or you know they maybe disabled it. They didn't need to enable it in the test environment, and then it never got enabled when the application transitioned in production. Yes, and so you actually prove by uh, analyzing actual uh, applications that I think it was CSRF protections that were not enabled by default, and so... Yeah, exactly. So I took several server-side JavaScript frameworks, Express, Koa, Happy, Sales, and looked at which level each of this framework has the cross-site request forgery protection enabled. If, for example, Express and Koa have plugins, so it's an extra step that developer needs to you know, go find the plugin, turn it on, and enable it correctly with correct settings versus sales, for example, has it built in, but it wasn't enabled by default. So when I tested about like 500 applications on GitHub and compared them based on the framework, I actually could see that the number of applications that have cross-site request forgery in Express, for example, is the same as in sales, which that wasn't what I expected. But when I was digging deeper, most often it was the case that in sales, that protection was not enabled. It was just set to false by default. Yes. So that's an interesting outcome. And so like our data as screen concurs with that, one thing we have seen is that uh, like amongst screen customers, I've seen that applications without frameworks are seven times more likely to have vulnerabilities than applications with a framework. 
that's also something like as I'm a former pen tester. And so at the beginning of my career, I witnessed uh, how Ruby on Rails grew in popularity and helped popularize development best practices across the industry. So it really was a game changer at the time as Rails popularized um, MVC, templating engines, database migrations, object relational mappers, convention over configuration. So it wasn't perfect, but it was such a huge step forward that we really witnessed the quality of web applications changing. And so did you experience the same thing, like some frameworks drastically improving the security of some applications? Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. If we look at the um, OWASP top 10, and as I was researching specifically cross-site request forgery, if we look at OWASP top 10 in... 2003 and seven and nine, C-Surf was in the top 10, right? Higher up, like fourth place, then seventh place. And then it was starting to gradually go down. And then in the recent one, it's not even there. It's not present. And the reason for that is that because a lot of framework have C-Surf protection enabled by default. And sometimes it's not that it's some sort of security feature that they built in. I mean, it is kind of on purpose, but... It's just the way the framework built. So, for example, if we look at .NET, you know, ASP.NET, they have a view state that they save for every page. And so if the content of the page changes, it's like a signature of the page, right? So if the content changes, for example, if an attacker is trying to, you know, inject a request and doesn't have a CSERF token in it, then the request will not be accepted, just because the page was crafted by an attacker and it looks slightly different. So basically, it's a C-Surf protection. As long as that view state is signed, so that attacker cannot fake it as well. But yeah, basically, some of such big frameworks, also Spring Security, for example, has that enabled by default by, by for all like post and delete requests. So since it's enabled by default, developers don't need to think about it and it just stops being an issue. <laughs> Yes, yes. The view state is famous indeed. It reminds me of there were actually a vulnerability in the view state implementation. You said it's sign. And I remember back in the days they were adding Oracle vulnerability mm -hmm. in the in I think it was Live Ray, one of the .NET frameworks. And so basically you could just basically generate or recover the signature for anything and just you had a remote code execution by just managing to fake the actual view state that was a, a small one but a fun one padding oracle attacks are amazing in, uh, in theory and when you have uh, one that works in practice it's always uh, like uh, a good achievement uh, to uh, <laughs> to act exactly. through that. so yes very good example and so you mentioned about the levels of vulnerability mitigation by john steven so that's a concept that i didn't know and that i discovered in your in your presentation really interesting so i will share an illustration in the in the episode resources so I think it can help us categorize the frameworks because so you have frameworks that tend to be very simple, very modular, such as Express, Flask, or Sinatra. And you have, so they have very little out-of-the-box protection for common threats because they give a lot of freedom to the developer and it's up to the developer to actually choose what they want to use and how they want to use. So amazing performance because they do very little out of the box. And on the other hand, you have much more elaborated frameworks such as so sales, uh, Django, Ruby on Rails, 
that have many, much more out-of-the-box pieces. And so there are like several ways to add security constraints, either relying on the team own library. So like the team would push their own library to add their own controls. That would be level one, according to the classification. Maybe it would be a very well-known library like a Cerberus or a Joy in Node level two, framework plugin level three, etc. And so your research showed that the closer to the framework you are and the ultimate being, being uh, having this mitigation or this library built into the framework, the best level of security would be achieved. So if we assume that someone wants to pick a framework for a project, so usually security isn't the main uh, driver to deciding what piece of software you want to use. Security is only one dimension amongst others when you evaluate a framework. So how would you uh, recommend evaluating the, the security of a framework? Yes, I wish security was important <laughs> important for developers when they pick it from the start, right? But of course, I mean, we choose a framework. I wish, I wish security was important for uh, framework developers, Senya. <laughs> that, that too, of course. <laughs> it's, it's unfair, it's unfair. It's more and more true. Right. But yes, when we choose a framework, we'll look at performance, at functionality. Does it actually solve our problem? Is it MVC framework? Is it a REST framework? Like, what, what is the problem we're trying to solve? And then is it popular? Is there good documentation? And then with somebody will say, oh, what about security of the framework? And I actually have a story about that. So when I was a consultant, we had a client, a big financial, financial industry organization. And oftentimes such companies are not quick in accepting new technologies, right? They like things that are proven and tested. So they would, you know, they use .NET and Java and with GSP for the front end. I mean, that was a few years, quite a few years ago. And so their front end developers wanted to switch into using Angular. And the management was like, well, what is the security impact if we're switching all our front end development into Angular? So they hired us to answer that question. And being the security minded person, I, you know, dig into Angular and found a bunch of ways that you could exploit it, the different security vulnerabilities. And frankly, Angular is a very secure framework, right? So it's there are not many ways compared to other things. But of course, I did my best and came up with this presentation and showed all the ways how Angular can be hacked. And the management were all very frightened. It's like, oh my God, this is so insecure. We should have new security protocols, new maybe code review steps or anything else if we want to introduce that. And actually, no, right? It's it's still a front-end framework. It still has the same issues as, you know, your GSP or another templating engine. It's still going to be vulnerable to cross-site scripting and other like iframe bypasses, etc. So from the protocols from from the policy standpoint it's no different but actually angular is a pretty secure framework because if you look at the documentation a they have like a security page that's separate in the framework documentation not many front end frameworks have a security section in them and they made an effort to mitigate as many vulnerabilities as possible. So for example, Angular has the contextually aware escaping that is built into the framework. It has the way to enable CSRF protection if it's also enabled on the server side and have the server side and the client side talk to each other and send the tokens, et cetera. So yes, it's great to look at the security of the framework. And 
as a developer, I mean, of course, maybe you cannot go and actually test the framework and evaluate, okay, what are the security issues with it? But you can definitely look into the documentation, see if there is a security section in it. You can look at the release notes and see what kind of bugs were fixed in the last few versions of the framework. Like, were there things that were fixed that have to do with security. If it's an open source framework, you can go into their GitHub and look at the issues, what kind of issues were reported. Are there a bunch of security issues that were reported and were never addressed and they're still open? Or are they fixed quickly within a few days? The other thing, of course, is popularity of the framework. Why Angular and React, for example, are so popular is because they are backed by Google and Facebook and big companies that, you know, you know they will spend time on security and they will support that. And as you said, for example, Django, if you look again at the documentation of Django, they mention that they say, we treat security as a first-class citizen. That's their quote. So... Yeah, those would be my top choices is basically to look at the documentation at the support of the framework and to see how important is security for that framework. Yes, I definitely agree. And an interesting point is, for instance, with React, the biggest risk you have to write cross-site scripting in React is by using a method that is called dangerously set inner HTML. So as a developer, I think if you call a method called dangerous, then you should really ask yourself why this is about. It's interesting because if you compare Angular and React, so they both have built-in protection from cross-site scripting, right? The contextual aware escaping. And in the first versions of Angular, AngularJS, they called that the same thing. It was enabled by default. But if you wanted to kind of turn it off, they called it method trust as HTML. So as a developer, you say, oh, I trust this HTML. Of course, it's, you know, it's not bad. Maybe it's coming from the user, but I trust it. And then React, when they came out, they called it dangerously set inner HTML. And then in the next version of Angular, they changed the name of that method and called it bypass security and they trust HTML. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Who will come up with the most frightening name? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Ah, I uh, was not aware of the good story. Good story. All right. And so let's assume a team uh, like pick a framework. All right. So you know it has security gaps. You know it's not perfect. So for many reasons, you want to go with it. So how would you recommend the team to live with an imperfect framework? Well, I think what framework cannot do, so maybe there are plugins for the framework that can cover those holes in the framework, right? The mitigation controls that don't exist in the framework. As you said, for example, if the team uses Express or Flask that don't have all the bells and whistles built into it, but Flask, for example, has a plugin called Flask Login, right? So to take care of all your authentication authorization, developers shouldn't write that code from scratch, but use a well-known plugin. Uh, And same for Express, there is like Passport.js, for example, is very popular to handle all the user management part. And then the next part would be procedures, right? And kind of procedures and protocols. So to make sure during the code review, developers check for those things, that they have these security controls enabled, that they have secure defaults set for these plugin secure settings. And that actually can be fairly easily achieved with a linting tool. Everything that we talk about configuration, I mean, there are SaaS tools that are built for that. There are open source SaaS tools, there are closed source 
SaaS tools that are built to support specific frameworks and they check for specific configurations of frameworks. But if it's something in your team, if it's the framework is not very popular, or maybe you're using a plugin that's not supported by a commercial tool, it's you know, a very new plugin, you can always write a linting tool to check, okay, are all the security faults turned on? And then, of course, the next step in the secure development lifecycle would be testing to test for those things. Have that written into your unit tests, security tests, and run them daily in your CI/CD pipeline, ideally. So yeah, catch them early. <laughs> I like the linting uh, example. And so that's one thing that is pretty uh, convenient to enforce an AppSec team. So for instance, if your developers are using React and you are afraid of them using a dangerously set in your HTML, then you could just add that as a linting rule. And you are pretty sure that this rule will almost never trigger. But when it does, that's something that is really important. So that won't be a false positive and it will definitely uh, make the developer care about that. Yeah, and actually, if you look for ESLint, the most famous JavaScript tool, there are plugins with those rules. And I think I wrote the ones for uh, React. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> we were colleague, probably using it. Yeah, a colleague of mine wrote one for Angular. I mean, it's been a few years ago. But yeah, we, we were teaming up and we were splitting the frameworks to write linting rules for Angular and React. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> okay, I'll check it out. Yeah, and some frameworks also have like unfair advantages. For instance, I know in Rails, there is the uh, Breakman static analyzer that is famous, has a very, mm -hmm. very good quality, very good level. So that's also something that you should use to come for free, etc. When you are using a given framework, like make sure uh, of the best practices that are famous around that framework. Sometimes there is no best practices. And so in that case, that's probably a flag. Maybe the framework is too uh, immature. So if your team really wants to go with that framework, but then I think it's it's time to hire someone like uh, Xenia and uh, ask uh, <laughs> them to, to do some, uh, some security research on that framework. Yeah. Yep. And obviously, uh, using security-friendly framework doesn't mean that everything is perfect. The frameworks can fail as well and have vulnerabilities. And it's... Just like any piece of software, usually the most line of codes you have, the most likely you are to have bugs. Some of those bugs will eventually be security issues. And so there are a couple of examples where frameworks have, uh, have fallen. For instance, in Rails, up to Rails 4.1, by default, the cookie store was storing serialized Ruby objects. So it was marshaled inside mm -hmm. the cookie, so uh, controlled by the user. Obviously, it was ciphered, but you had some vulnerabilities that helped either retrieve the key, either break the signature and just allowed you basically to inject uh, any Ruby code inside the inside the Rails application and so remote remote code execution. I think like Ruby on Rails is also the framework that popularized the issue of mass assignment vulnerability. Now mm -hmm. that's a, a vulnerability that is well known and found in, uh, I think it's in the OWASP uh, API top 10, for instance. And that's something that you can find in many different places, but it inherently came from the flexibility that Ruby on Rails was uh, offering. And I think another famous one is Struts and the OGNL injections that also allowed for remote code execution. And that's the famous Equifax bridge. Are you aware of any like uh, famous framework flows, uh, Xenia? Yeah, so the other interesting aspect is when we talk about applications, sometimes today applications don't use just one framework. 
And when you start combining the frameworks, that's where the fun begins. So like my current research is focusing on Electron, which is a framework for desktop JavaScript applications. And so what Electron has, it has Node.js behind the scenes kind of on the server part of the application. And then it has a stripped down Chrome browser on top and you can run whatever client side code you want to have the UI of your desktop application. So oftentimes you will find applications that have, you know, node, Electron node on the, on the bottom, on, on the server, and for example, React on top. So now you have two frameworks, and the question is how they interact with each other. And so speaking of the dangerously set inner HTML, that is a method in React, there was a no well-known vulnerability in uh, Signal, the messaging application, which is built on React. And it uses React as the front end. And so in one of the ways where you send a message, it had the dangerously set inner HTML enabled, which usually leads to cross-site scripting. But now that this is an Electron application, a desktop application, that JavaScript may not just you know, read the cookies or read some other client-side data, but it can actually be executed on the server side. And so by tying these different vulnerabilities, and because the um, rendering window of the desktop part was not also secured by the Node.js part of Electron, it has a feature that's called node integration, which was not enabled in that case, which means that client-side JavaScript can now call node functions, things like, you know, execute any, any <laughs> code, right? Yes. So it was a cross-site scripting that led to an RCE, to remote code execution. And basically the way it looked is, you know, I send somebody a message with something that looks like a link. A link contains some JavaScript. It's embedded in the receiver's person's, whoever receives the message in, into their page and then executes a code, arbitrary code on their machine. So pretty scary. And that's very typical, unfortunately, for Electron applications. Just this morning, I was reading another blog about a similar vulnerability in the Discord app, which is also built on Electron. And it kind of has a similar pattern. It has a cross-site scripting that leads to remote code execution. But in that case, they had the node integration disabled. So they protected that whatever is run in the client-side window, even if there is a cross-site scripting, it cannot directly call any internal Node.js methods. However, they forgot to secure that window with another feature of Electron, and it's called context isolation. So what they were able to do is overwrite a JavaScript primitive in the client-side window, a function like array prototype.join. So you know, for every array in JavaScript, there is a join function. And so they basically overwrite what that function does. So it's also a prototype pollution vulnerability tied into this. And then when some part of the server-side code runs that join method, basically they're going to run some custom code and then instead of joining the pieces of the array, they're actually running, you know, exec and then the name of the binary yes. function. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. It, yeah, yes. it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm glad people have time to do that research and like to tie different vulnerabilities together. 
It's fun because the brothers, they actually uh, put a lot of efforts in uh, isolation, sandboxing, leveling up security, defining new security protocols like W3C. Uh, the security working group is doing an amazing job. And the desktop applications that are using like Electron and everything, it feels like there is still a gap. And so they are catching up, but there is still some much more work to be done to get parity from a security standpoint. Exactly. I think you are currently researching desktop applications, right, uh, Xenia? And yes. you mentioned that you were presenting some research uh, in December, I think? Yes. So, yes, this is kind of my third part of my thesis research and my goal to be done soon. <laughs> but I will be presenting my intermediate results at a conference called Absolute AppSec in December. It's going to be a remote conference, as everything is remote today, <laughs> on December 16th and 17th. And I think I'm scheduled to speak on the first day, December 16th. So yeah, I'll be talking about electron security and specifically the protections that the framework provides and how developers use and do not use it and what happens when they don't use it and how we can help developers actually use them by default. <laughs> cool. We'll share the links to the conference in the podcast notes, uh, of course. Sounds good. So we touched that a bit, the quality of the ecosystem libraries in the frameworks. So yeah, obviously that's a dimension that you want to uh, you want to take into account. So you mentioned that like a passport or a Flask login for uh, authentication. I guess that's the same for uh, cryptography and everything. And so that's also important to choose libraries that are strong in the in the ecosystem that you are choosing but often it's not like trivial because you have several libraries and it's not you don't have like a single default choice because it's still a plugin so you have to research what is the one that makes the most uh, sense from a usage uh, point of view have you seen some uh, caveats around that uh, Xenia? Yeah, of course, we talk about you know using the most popular plugins the most supported plugins but we need to remember that today software is built on top of open source software, be it you know open source or closed source. So, for example, our subsidiary of Synopsis Black Duck on Demand in like 2017, they in their research that showed that 96% of commercial code bases use you know at least one open source component, and oftentimes more more than one. And then more recent data from 2020 showed that from 70 to 90% of the code, of uh, the commercial code actually consists of open source libraries. And so, of course, if we are using an open source, and I'm not saying, you know, open source code is bad. I'm just saying that we are using a lot of code that our developers did not write, that we did not review manually, and we have no idea what's in that code. And even if you are using an open source security control library, right? For example, Flask login or some authentication or uh, OWASP C-Serve guard or something. That library will likely use other open source libraries, which use other open source libraries, right? Oftentimes, if, you know, if you're a JavaScript user and you install a plugin and you say, you know, npm install plugin foo, and then it runs and says, oh, just install 267 libraries, and what's in that 267 libraries? I was only going to install one, right? And you can make sure that that one is actively developed, it's actively fixed, it has documentation. But what if that library uses another library that uses another library that is not maintained well? 
that had a vulnerability. So there was another one now probably about a year ago, famous on the NPM, where an author of the library gave authoring rights to somebody else, to another contributor that they didn't know about. That, you know, somebody wanted to contribute. It's all anonymous, of course, right? Somebody wants to contribute, made a few pull requests, the code looked good, and they gave full admin rights to maintain that library because the person who wrote the library originally was not interested in maintaining it. And like, that's normal. Life happens, right? We move on from our projects. So the new maintainer turned out to be malicious and submitted another change to the library that was scanning for Bitcoin wallets on the application, <laughs> yes. right? Like became part of the applications and then it would scan for Bitcoin wallets on your computer and steal your Bitcoin money. Yeah. <laughs> right. so, yes, that's the trade-off of uh, using uh, external uh, libraries. But we cannot really say that, oh, we should stop using external libraries. Like, that's not realistic. We're all going to use open source code. Otherwise, we have to write everything from scratch, and I'm not sure that's the best solution. <laughs> yes. So I think in that case, the best thing we can do is to be super reactive. Uh, like, we need to update uh, quickly those things. And that's actually the trade-off of using famous frameworks, famous and widely used pieces of code is that when one vulnerability is found, it might get exploited very, very quickly because as the market share of the frameworks is super high, someone with an exploit will have a lot of potential customers. And so the key thing you need to do, obviously, when you are relying on great frameworks is to monitor the security of those frameworks. So either by using tooling, either by watching the, the mailing list, you can also do both, which will help you rank the severity of, of everything. But as like any company is growing, you tend not to have one framework. You, you tend more to have 10 hundreds of different frameworks that you need to monitor. And so one thing that will help you keep that is like having an inventory of all the applications and all the frameworks that you are using. A figure that was interesting is that the Equifax breach that was so damaging for them, it took only a month between the vulnerability was disclosed and the update available in the framework and the Equifax breach. So like the timeline is not long. You need to patch uh, quickly your, uh, your applications, which is why uh, inventory is really, really needed in such cases. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one thing that you need to patch the frameworks that you think you're using, your big, you know, main frameworks, your Spring, whatever, Struts, your Angular. But then also, as you said, that you may be using a bunch of small libraries. And if you don't track, if you don't have the data, if you don't do the component analysis, right, then the patches come out for those other small plugins and libraries, and you need to update them as well. And my always my message to the framework developers and maintainers, you know, when you develop a new version, please, please make it backward compatible. Please make make the update process as easy as possible. I understand it's not always possible, but you know, from security standpoint, if it introduces a breaking change and there is no good way forward, unfortunately, it is very likely that a lot of companies, developers will not upgrade. That's why we find in our assessments all the time, you know, older versions of frameworks and libraries are still there that have known vulnerabilities. 
Yes, and so that's why it's super important not to fall behind too many versions. Otherwise, the update is getting more and more painful. And the yeah. day you need to urgently do it because there is a security vulnerability, then it makes dealing with that vulnerability extremely, uh, extremely hard. Yeah. And so... Frameworks are foundational and really critical in securing any application. And so to me, the concept of a paved road, you know, the fact that developers should have a secure way to do certain things and that in order to be used those certain ways, then they need to be easier than doing things in an unsafe way. So that's the concept of a paved road that was like highly uh, publicized by a Netflix AppSec team, for instance. So the frameworks are a really great place to start with plenty of the tasks that the applications are fulfilling. And so that's really the chance for a security team to review some of the best practices and to enforce or to popularize some of the best practices, like providing examples, providing helpers. Most of the frameworks have uh, nice and useful command line helpers that can really, really be leveraged to perform certain uh, tasks. So one typical example is uh, creating S3 buckets. One major source of vulnerabilities in most companies is like publicly exposed S3 buckets, huge uh, source of data leaks. And if you provide with your developers a secure way and standard way to create a three buckets. For instance, raise, uh, create bucket, uh, uh, usage, uh, public or usage, private, whatever. Mm -hmm. This might completely A, uh, reduce the likelihood that something is created with the wrong permissions. B, give the opportunity to the security team to review it, uh, maybe periodically. So that's really a great place to enforce this concept of paved uh, road. Yeah, having those kind of harnesses when you're starting a new application and using the pre-built skeleton of the application that already has all the security features you know, enabled and set the way you want them to be set for your organization specifically. Like that, that concept is really, really great. Yes, definitely. So... Maybe one advice to uh, any uh, AppSec team, Senia, and so I know you've done that uh, in the past several times. How would you recommend like a new AppSec engineer to process when assessing a brand new framework security? The best way is to write an application in that framework <laughs> is to write your own code. So you first you understand the functionality and then try to break that code and try to hack your own application. I mean, that's always the best way to learn. And yes, you can look at the code examples at the sample applications that already exist for that framework. But again, try to break them. Take your OWASP top 10 list or whatever list of vulnerabilities you want to find and try to see if you can find every single one of them and build the application to be vulnerable and then build the application to be secure, how you fix them with that framework. Yes. That's, that's what we've done so many times when I developed courses for engineers, right? Security development courses. So you would write a sample application and then you try to break it and introduce vulnerabilities, but then you try to also fix them. And as a result, you basically get a lab for the students. You know, here's the app, find all the vulnerable points and then fix them. Yes, and I think it's also super important to build an application that is close to what the developers are trying to achieve. So if it's a web app, if it's an API, if it's a worker, client application, just mimic that as much as possible and use also the tools that the developers will be using. If such cache or such database is popular in your company, then try to, to use them and see uh, how much default security is built into the framework. 
Yeah. And obviously, I would say that the next step that you need to be doing if you are a security researcher or an AppSec person doing this work is to contribute your findings back to the community. And so one of the ways could be to actually contribute to the security page of the framework, build maybe pull requests if you found vulnerabilities in the framework, but just don't keep those findings for yourself and your company contribute them back in the framework. And so that will also be the best way for next projects in your own company to start with much more secure defaults. Yeah. My other favorite way is to contribute to Stack Overflow. Because as you're building something and you're using your framework and you Google, oh, how do I you know, read the files with this new technology? How do I create a user? And then you stumble upon examples and they're like, these examples are vulnerable. They are not using, you know, the best security things. And instead of like from as a security person, instead of sitting there and saying, oh, developers are stupid. They have all these bad examples and they copy paste bad code. And now you have this bad code and application. Like, Well, answer that question and provide your code example with the good settings, with the good security, or at least comment and mention that, you know, th there is a better way to do it. Yes, Stack Overflow powered <laughs> security. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Or at least enrich Stack Overflow to have more, more secure defaults uh, as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So choosing the right framework and the right defaults and best practices is really critical in uh, any application security journey. So the framework is the, really the foundation of all of the code written. So having the right examples, the right helpers, the right CI around it can be really game changer for uh, solving most of the security low-hanging uh, fruits. So Xenia, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us uh, today. I really appreciated having you in the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me and congratulations on your you know, brand new podcast and all the best luck in bringing that knowledge because it is so important to have more information for the builders, not just about how we hack things, but how we build things that are secure. Thank you so much, Sonia. I wish you uh, best of luck for uh, finishing your PhD. I'm sure it will be uh, amazing. I'm looking forward to see your uh, graduation. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I need all, all the luck, all the good vibes for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of AppSec Builders. You can find all the resources discussed during this show on www.appsecbuilders.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to get updates on our upcoming episodes. Thank you.